Today's Animal Spirits Talker book is brought to you by Glass Funds. That's G-L-A-S Funds. It's glassfunds.com. Go to glassfunds.com to learn more about how they can introduce an alternatives platform to your financial advisor wealth management platform. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Michael, I've talked before how I... I what do you, I, I grew up in the institutional investing side of the world. It was endowments and foundations and pensions. And they all puffed their chest out like they were kings of the world, kings and queens of the world. And we're the only ones who have the ability to invest in alts because we have this money, we have scale, we have expertise. And it was kind of like anyone else who gets, who wants alternatives, they get seconds. They get our, you know, whatever is left. Scraps. They get our leftovers. Yeah, I get the table scraps. And I, I think that's changed since I left that that side of the world where I was managing money exclusively for a foundation in these billion dollar funds that now wealth managers are having gaining access to these funds that aren't just like the also rands or the giant 50 billion dollar fund that is just trying to to bring in fee revenue did it start with the fund of funds was that how retail first access this yes like which at is scale a, which is rarely, if ever, a good deal if you're right. paying fees on top of fees. And so then, and so then came along some some of the platforms where you can access these via you know a menu, for lack of a better word, and had the options to to get some education and information. And then along came companies like the one that we're about to t- about to talk with today, where they're tech enabled, and it's more than just access; it's actually working with the REAs and their advisors to facilitate a better experience. As someone who worked in the operational aspects of things like private equity and hedge funds and venture capital back in the day in a very small team, that was always my biggest problem with it is the operational headaches are so is, are such a big hurdle for anyone, whether they're institutions or wealth managers, that it's almost not worth it. But these new platforms are actually coming in and doing the operational stuff for you so you can just kind of focus on the funds, which is which is kind of interesting. So we talked to Brett Hilliard today. Brett is the CIO of Glass Funds, and we're going to get into more all of this stuff and more. So here's our conversation with Brett. We're joined again today by Brett Hilliard. Brett is the CIO at Glass Funds. Welcome back. Yeah, glad to be back. Quick reminder, you were on the show back in May, but for those that, that missed that, who is Glass Funds? What are you guys all about? Sure. We are a alternative aggregation platform, so we help uh, wealth managers uh, scale and allocate alternative allocations across their client base, uh, including hedge and private capital strategies. So there, there's there's a bunch of of these uh, in the industry. One of the things that's unique about you is that unlike some of the competitors, you guys are not a feeder fund. Can you explain that, what that is and how how that separates you from some of the competition? Yeah, so we have two main buying entities, an onshore and offshore fund, and each underlying strategy is essentially a side pocket that's legally walled off from all the other side pockets. So that allows uh, advisor firms to 
create fully bespoke portfolios across hedge and private capital. And there are a number of efficiencies due to our legal structure. One is they only need to subscribe an LP one time. Uh, that takes about five to eight minutes. And then you know we save all of that data. And then if they six months later want to allocate to another private capital fund, that probably takes another two minutes. And then we it also allows uh, for lower frictions uh, to allocate to underlying strategies. Because we're not spinning up a new feeder fund, we can allocate to a manager for as little as a million dollars in the aggregate, where spinning up a new legal entity may you may want to get at least 30 million to spread out those startup costs. And then also time to market is much quicker as it's really just contingent on how fast we can get through our review uh, period. There's really no lags uh, due to the creation of a new uh, legal entity. And then lastly, uh, we also offer aggregated reporting, including aggregated tax reporting. So an investor can ultimately own 20 things. At the end of the year, they'll get a single aggregated K-1. In, in my background with investing in private funds was mainly from the institutional side of things. It was with endowments and foundations and those types of plans. And I always had a hard time wrapping my mind around alternatives because we had a small team at the endowment I worked for, and it was just a lot of paperwork, a lot of due diligence. And uh, frankly, if you weren't a huge Ivy League school or one of these these really huge pensions, you were kind of a, the at the lower end of things and you didn't get a lot of attention. But even then, it seemed like institutional investors were head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of their place in the hierarchy, right? It was easier to get allocations to these funds if you were an institution. This is, you know, 10 years ago or so. How have things changed? And, and at that time, it was mainly, I guess, maybe like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley would have offered some, or Goldman Sachs would have offered some hedge fund allocation to their clients. But maybe you could talk to me about how things have changed in that time in terms of wealth management industry investing in private funds versus institutions and some of the pros and cons there. Yeah, there's been a lot of technology advancement and uh, disruption uh, in trying to democratize alternatives. And it's making it easier uh, for wealth managers to allocate. Uh, you know, what's been around a long time is just digitizing the subscription process. So turning those 100 to 200 page subscription documents into a more easily digestible online questionnaire. Also, you know, aggregating small tickets to big tickets to make institutional level private funds or hedge funds more accessible. Uh, but then, you know, I think where Glass Funds is really iterated on is now that the subscription process has been digitized and minimums have been solved to a large extent, uh, we're seeing advisor firms have challenges managing diversified portfolios of alternatives across a large client base. And that's where we think our platform uh, can offer a lot of efficiencies and allow the advisor firm with more limited operational professionals on their side, being able to implement, uh, cover and manage existing and new allocations within diversified portfolios, as opposed to just uh, viewing an allocation one by one by one. Can you talk about the existing part of it? I'm curious because often advisors will, will, will onboard a client from a wirehouse or wherever they're coming from, and they might have existing alternatives that the advisor did not recommend, the the onboarding advisor did not recommend, um, but maybe they can't get out of for various reasons. How does Glass Funds help in a situation like that? 
Yeah, so we have the ability to transfer those positions onto our platform. You know, that's at the discretion of the end client and the advisor firm. We will, uh, we cast a wide net on what we'll accept. Now, the underlying strategy has to be operationally sound. Uh, sometimes if the firm that currently holds it, if they view a competitive reason, they may block a transfer, uh, but we don't really have those restrictions on our side. Uh, and then our efficiencies go up the more that the advisor firm and the client, uh, the higher the number of positions they have in our platform, the greater number of the efficiencies. So if they're able to transfer the existing positions, then it all gets folded under the ability to do uh, you know, aggregated reporting, aggregated tax reporting. We have a single uh, bank that we uh, wire money to and uh, distribute distributions from. So that creates efficiencies. So trying to, you know, fold as many of these positions onto our platform can offer the advisor firm uh, a number of efficiencies. But again, the existing holder or custodian of that asset has to uh, uh, accept the, tra the transfer. Do, do those efficiencies translate at all into liquidity? Because that was always one of the other things I had that I found that was really challenging in this space is the liquidity where some hedge funds or real estate funds would have uh, a certain window of time where you could, could get your money out. And it, maybe it was only a certain percentage of the fund. And it was uh, sometimes it would have to be like a nine to 12 month lead. And, and so getting your money in was always way easier than getting it out. Have there been any changes there where things have improved at all there? And, and how do you I'll handle the liquidity, whether it's just for rebalancing or whether it's for someone who actually wants to take their money out of a certain fund. Our platform offers the ability uh, for enhanced liquidity. So an advisor firm, let's say they allocate $10 million to a buyout fund. And, you know, despite all of the education that the advisor firm does to the end client, you know, this is a 10 year plus uh, investment. Uh, you know, there's liquidity as they sell down underlying companies in the portfolio. It's common where uh, an investor will come in to the advisor firm saying, hey, look, I know what you told me, but I need liquidity now. So that advisor firm can come to us and they can either have other clients in their advisor firm saying, hey, look, client A wants out. Uh, he wants out of his $250,000 commitment. I have clients B, C, and D that can assume that position. And at the glass funds level, we can just change the composition of the ownership. We do not have to go to the GP because at the all what the GP sees is glass funds in aggregate. They don't know, nor do they care how that aggregate is divided on our side. And in also glass funds, uh, you know, we don't dictate the terms. So the advisor firm and the transferer and the transferees, they dictate the terms on which the transfer takes place. We're just helping facilitate that. So there's no like legal structure that's stopping you from changing that ownership halfway through the fund's life or something? No. It's really just the ability to source uh, demand for that position. And as long as the advisor firm and or glass funds can source that demand, and as long as uh, both parties agree to the terms, we can easily uh, make that transfer. So you, you've created like your own secondary liquidity in some ways. Yes. And we think... The institutional secondary market has grown strongly over the last 10 plus years. We think the wealth management liquidity or secondary market is behind that, but we do think it's going to continue to grow and materialize where there's going to be more dedicated secondary investors targeting this area 
Because the early adopters, let's say, you know, in the wealth management channel, private capital started to become acceptable in the mid 2010s. You know, so now we're starting to see investors have more mature portfolios. They may have higher allocations to private capital, and then they may run into more liquidity needs. And that should spur higher turnover uh, within secondary liquidity demand. Brett, isn't it hard enough for investors, uh, certainly advisors, to analyze and and contemplate whether or not allocating fresh capital into a strategy makes sense? How are they then supposed to determine, okay, this particular fund has all these underlying investments, it's been running for four and a half years or whatever the case may be, how are they getting the knowledge to determine whether or not they're paying a good price for the underlying investments? Is that something that Glass Funds is helping with? No, we do. You know, we'll help provide data, uh, but we do not opine on valuation. Most of the transfers that take place on our platform are done at the most recent NAV provided by the underlying manager. And the reason is typically the advisor firm is sourcing that liquidity within their own client base. It can get complicated when we're talking about substantial either discounts or premiums compared to the most recent NAV especially when you have clients under the same advisor umbrella. Got it. Do you, do you think about Glass Funds as more of an investment firm, more of a technology firm, somewhere in the middle? Or how, how would you think about your, your business through that lens? We view it more as a technology firm and as an enterprise solution. No matter uh, any type of client we have, they interact with our technology and the efficiencies uh, that they gain from our technology and structure. Research is just an additional course in the buffet of things that they can decide to utilize. And some advisor firms, they source pretty much all of their own ideas and they're just using the Glass Funds architecture to scale that across their client base. Where we have other advisor firms that they more heavily rely on Glass Funds research team of which I lead and uh, you know, getting our ideas across various uh, alternative categories. So advisors can bring their own their own deals as long as it has the operational infrastructure to be supported by you guys. Correct. We call those advisor source funds. We will do an operational overview to make sure there's institutional plumbing on the administrator and auditor side. And as long as that passes, we will onboard it onto our platform. We do not opine on the investment merits of advisor source funds. I'm curious if the efficiencies of scale in your business have have led to any changes in the fees. I know a lot of people assume across alternatives, whether it's private equity or venture capital or hedge funds, that it's all two and 20. And I, I'm sure for a lot of the biggest funds, it still is maybe that same fee structure, but not everyone in the alternative space charges that. I don't know if you can tell me the averages, if it's now, I don't know, 15 and one and a half or whatever it is. Uh, how does the, the fee landscape look these days for alternatives? The fees are drifting lower, and I think it will continue to do so as it, the space gets more competitive. And that's where I also think where we can uh, help wealth managers use their scale to get institutional like fee breaks. One common opportunity that we see consistently in the market are seed deals for private credit platforms. So GPs that are trying to scale up in private credit, they 
can typically offer a combination of discounted fees or some form of GP economics. And those can be pretty lucrative for the end investors. But for them to offer that, they're going to want commitments anywhere from 10 million, 25 million and up. And they also want to target the wealth management channel, but they don't want to take a bunch of $250,000 checks. So using an aggregation platform like Glass Funds, advisors can scale up and you know deliver a large check to these private credit managers and also take advantage of some of the seed economics that they're offering to help scale their platform. We see more of these opportunities as the alternatives ecosystem continues to grow. And I think that's where wealth managers uh, should take a close look at uh, to make their uh, to enhance their fee efficiency and net of fee returns to their end investors. Glass Funds has been operating for a while. You must have a pretty good look uh, look through to the industry. Um, I don't know if you disclose how, how what what is the metric that you guys use? Is it assets under advisement or what what is like how much money is on the platform? Yeah, we look at a couple metrics. Uh, we measure AUM and committed. So we're a little over $2 billion in AUM and committed capital. Uh, the majority of our aggregated capital is in private drawdown funds uh, compared to open-end hedge funds. And then we also look at how many advisor firms we work with, how many positions we have on the platform. So that's sort of how we uh, gauge our size. Got it. And you work you work only with with, advise, with RAAs or, or is that not the case? We mostly work with fiduciaries, so RAAs and private banks. Okay. Um, all right. So, so do you have any, uh, any sort of insights as to where the money is going these days? What's, what's popular? So, uh, alternatives is a very wide bucket. There are, as Ben mentioned, there's hedge funds, there's private equity, whether it's buyouts or venture, there's private credit, there's private real estate, there's infrastructure. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there. Or is any one or two of those areas seeing particular client interest above the rest? There's different pockets of demand. I would say over the last several years, in looking at the broader market trends as well as the flows across our platform, private capital is still dominant over hedge funds. Hedge funds garner some strong feelings, either on the positive side or negative side. Uh, certain firms are large allocators to hedge funds, but there's a number of firms that they've decided that hedge is not the right solution for them. There's much less firms uh, that have decided that private capital is not the right solution for them. So the majority of our flows are still being driven by private capital. Sorry, did, when you say private capital, is that is that the same thing as private credit? Yeah. So under private capital, we include buyout, venture, growth, credit, and uh, also with under the real assets uh, category, that will include private real estate, infrastructure, natural resources, et cetera. I'm, I'm curious how the current interest rate environment affects alternatives, because I can see it going both ways. Uh, you know, with 5% T-bill yields, on the one hand, I can see that being a much higher hurdle rate. And people would say, why would I invest in alts? Because those, those credit funds would have to have much higher returns. Uh, on the other hand, you know things like hedge funds. I would imagine higher rates have to be a good thing because if you're if you're shorting or doing something like that and you're holding cash, you know you're actually earning something on the cash these days. For private equity, obviously there's a higher borrow rate, uh, but obviously not all that money is is being invested at once. So how do you see the the rate 
landscape impacting alternatives? Uh, and you can take it any way you want with the types of alternatives and how it impacts them. There are a number of cross currents. I would say on a same store sales basis type view, uh, allocations from our vantage point are down modestly. And I think that's partly just there's a there was a large decline in the 60-40 portfolio. That's probably the major funding source. So, you know, even despite the rebound in 2023, you know, a traditional portfolio is most likely still under its high watermark. And then also cash is a viable asset now. You know, now that you can get five, five and a half percent on cash, you know, that becomes a little more attractive. It's more competitive. I would say we have still experienced strong growth because there's so much secular white space within wealth management allocating to alternatives. So a large percentage of our growth this year has been onboarding new advisor firms and helping them scale up their alternatives across their platform versus you know longstanding clients increasing their pacing uh, to private capital and hedge. I'm curious, what's the range in size of the type of uh, advisors you're working with? Yeah, there's quite a, a wide range. You know, we uh, some of our advisors are more specialists in alternatives, so they focus on ultra high net worth families that typically have you know founded or run a business, and they're just managing their alternatives uh, portion. They can, given their specialty, you know, they could be on the smaller size of a billion, two billion, upwards to you know some of our clients' larger private banks, 50, 60 billion of AUM, and everything in between. So you, you said that advisors have the ability to customize portfolios as opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to say to a client who asks, hey, do you guys do alternatives? And then them giving like sort of the laundry, or I don't know why I said laundry, the, oh, I was say laundry list, the list of, of things that they can invest in. Oh, we have this, we have this, we have this. Are advisors creating custom portfolios that like, this is how we do alternatives and it's a portfolio of however they, they chop it up and then it's just one cohesive message. Is that something that you're seeing advisors do? Yes, they're building now a program and they need, they lever our technology and platform to deliver that program. So they'll start out with some different iterations of let's say a vintage 2023 private capital series that will include perhaps some buyout, growth, private credit. And that will sort of serve as a base uh, to iterate on. But then given certain client suitability or preferences, they may tweak that around the edges. And in that way, they can greater, they have greater efficiency in scaling the allocations across their client base as opposed to doing, doing fully bespoke portfolios on a client-by-client basis. So just, just following up on that, does the fact that a lot of these these funds have vintages, meaning that they'll open up a new one once every year, once every other year, whatever it is, does that further complicate the idea that I just mentioned? Does it make it harder for, for advisors to implement a strategy like that? It can at first, uh, but the, the more experienced advisors, they learn the cadence of a stable of managers that they're familiar with. So they, they'll know that manager A, they'll raise every three to four years and you know, they're going to come on board in 2024 and that offsets with manager B that's live in 2023. And then so they start out with a core stable of managers, but then they may drop one, add another one uh, and modify it year by year. Uh, that's where we've seen some of the more longer tenured teams do it on our side. One of my roles early on in my career was 
tracking the performance of our alternative investment part of the portfolio. And that, that's pretty easy, relatively easy for hedge funds, but for for holdings in in private real estate and especially private equity or venture capital, it's it's can be kind of tricky because you're dealing with IRRs, which is not the same thing as the compound rate of return. So how do you handle the performance reporting aspect for advisors? We take all of the underlying accounting data that we get from our funds, and then we provide that data through an API to a number of front-end reporting systems that the wealth management shops use. Then they can take that digital raw material and customize uh, client reporting uh, reports uh, and deliver certain metrics such as multiple invested capital, net IRR, percent called, percent uncalled. So there's some efficiencies uh, with that, especially us digitizing it and feeding it to them electronically for, and then their ability to customize. Certainly, the, there's still challenging aspects. Private capital reporting is typically lagged by a quarter. Some strategies are lagged by two quarters. So, you know, an end client, you know, obviously they'll have all full up-to-date public market performance, you know, let's say as of the end of second quarter, where, you know, they look at their private book, a portion of it could be marked as a first quarter and another portion could be, could be marked um, as a fourth quarter 2022. One of the challenges with alternatives uh, traditionally has been some of the opacity around the fee structure. Uh especially if you're, especially if there's just more than one party involved. Um, and the SEC is, has some proposals out there that I want to get your take on. Uh, but before we get there, how does, how does glass funds, what are the economics of your business? We charge a flat management fee uh, to the end investor. And then that management fee is struck at the advisor firm level. And that fee scales down as the advisor firm scales their usage up uh, with glass funds. And what is that? What is the fee for a new user? It can range anywhere from 25 to 50 basis points. And it's really dependent on, you know, the size of the firm, how much they think they're going to initially allocate, what the outlook is for the next 12, 24 months. And then then we set uh, breaks over time to, to revisit it. Got it. So the SEC uh, is is taking a, a closer look at some of the business practices in private markets. And there's a bunch of proposals out there, and I'm sure this is going to be litigated and lobbied and you know who knows where this will eventually land. But could you just talk at a very high level about some of the things that they're going to be going after that you think right, you know, rightly or wrongly do need to be revised? Yeah, we've been keeping up to date on it, mostly through media reports and also uh, some sources that, that we rely on. In general, anything that enhances the transparency to end investors and creates perhaps better negotiating power to the LPs uh, compared to the GPs, we're in favor on. I think where it can get a little tricky is if the right balance isn't struck, you know, have you know, do some of these provisions create onerous burdens on the GPs for them to more efficiently deliver their strategy? And, you know, I'm not quite sure whether if it will be passed or has been passed, but I believe at one point they were debating a provision of, you know, if you offered a fee break to one investor, you may have to offer it to all investors. We think that may be a little too far because, uh, Allocators that come in size, they should 
get favorable economics. It just is more efficient for the GP to manage a larger ticket than it is a bunch of smaller tickets. I was talking with Josh about this last night. That's, that's how the world works, right? Um, if you come with, with, with better economics, you get a better pricing, whether it's finance or construction or, or whatever the case may be. One of the things that they're talking about that I think the industry is going to be uproarious about is this look-through thing. Can you talk about, about that? The look-through as in uh, a specific attribute or... Well, well, well. Maybe looking through like uh, bundled investors and what constitutes a private versus public company. Yeah. So I think again, it, it's it's a fine line between transparency. I think better transparency is better for the end investors almost all the time. Now the question is, do that? Are these requirements just going to create a tremendous amount of burden or complexity? Uh, to the recipients of those reports, and is it going to get into some arcane debates and that just creates a bunch of confusion? I think that's where it can err on the the side of just it's too much. So you know, I think transparency around underlying investments, uh, underlying fees, uh, audits, et cetera. I think that's all favorable to the end investors. You know, it's a question of just are they just going to require too much information where um, there's just not much use out of that. Well, it's not even just, I mean, obviously everybody I think is is in favor of more transparency, but if this causes, uh, you know, cost to rise, whether it's compliance or legal or whatever, unfortunately, who do you think is going to bear, bear the brunt of that? It's probably going to be the investors that are trying to protect. Yeah, absolutely. So in going through fund agreements and financial statements, all pretty much, uh, uh, Almost all of the portion of the cost to operate the fund gets charged to the fund. So LPs have to be careful for how much they ask for because they could just be taking money out of their own pocket. So for, for advisors that want to work with class funds, are you integrated with all of their tech stack, whether it's their CRM, their reporting software, things like that? Yeah, we have a lot of flexibility to connect to a number of underlying platforms uh, on the reporting side. Uh, I think we do have the ability to connect to their CRM. We don't get that request uh, too often. Uh, but that's something certainly we would explore. Uh, our dedicated tech team, you know, they do a great job keeping up to date on the latest uh, trends, as well as building a tech stack that has great flexibility. Uh, because we know there's, uh, you know, just a wide variety of different systems that either private banks or wealth managers use. So we try to focus on our ability to integrate and connect uh, with those systems. Brad, if people want to learn more about Glass Funds, where do we send them? Yeah, uh, check out our website, uh, glassfunds.com. Um, I'm active on one LinkedIn. S? Yes, one us. And then uh, I'm active on LinkedIn. Don't hesitate uh, to reach out there and uh, we'll get back to you. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you to Brett again. Remember, go to glassfunds.com to learn more about their platform. Email us, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. 